good evening, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, it's my uh, great uh, pleasure to introduce you to our first uh, distinguished keynote, Dr. Uh, Dylan Trigg. Uh, Dylan is the, uh, hope I get this right, Delisa um, Meitner Senior Fellow at the University of uh, uh, Vienna. Uh, Dylan is an exceptionally uh, accomplished in phenomenology. He's worked all over the world, including as a, a Marie Curie International Fellow at the University of Memphis. He's worked at the uh, University College Dublin School of Philosophy. Um, and uh, he's also worked at uh, Equivalent Mount Superior. Um, I'm just going to notify you, Dylan's got tons and tons of publications. Um, his most recent book is Tocophobia, A Phenomenology of Anxiety. He's the author of The Memory of Place, A Phenomenology of the Uncanny, The Aesthetics of Decay, Nothing, Nothingness, Nostalgia, and the Absence of Reason, and also um, the book about the Humanities, a really fantastic little book called The Thing, A Phenomenology of Horror, where uh, Dylan looks at phenomenology, horror, and light of Husserl, uh, Heidegger, Merleau-Ponty, and Lovecraft, and Cronenberg, and all these weird and wonderful things. Uh, today, his paper is going to be called Who is the Subject of Birth? Is that right? Yes. Yes. Uh, over to you, Dylan. Thank you so much, Patrick, for that very generous um, introduction. And for the great privilege of speaking here today. It's uh, indeed a, a great honor. Um, Yeah, so just a few words of context, if I may. Um, I've been on parental leave since March of this year, and this is my first foray into the outside world since then, and also back into uh, academic life. So you'll have to excuse any um, rough edges or uh, general delirium that this talk may entail. And uh, moreover, I'm not actually sure where this project, I'm not even sure if it is a project, it's going, it's rather, uh, you know, I, start, I, I, I started one thing and um, somehow found my way onto childbirth. So um, it, may, it may just be a one-off or it may become my life work. Um, so, uh, childbirth. There was nothing atypically strange about the birth of my son. It was a long process, 36 glorious hours marked by complications riddled with uncertainties and uh, fought with anxieties, not least because it took place within a hospital in Vienna, uh, in a language that neither my French-speaking wife nor I speak very well. But um, within the scheme of things, it followed a conventional route in both procedural and effective terms and resulted in a healthy boy, Hugo. Uh, you can see him up there, he's a real star. Um, and yet, uh, despite, or because of this conformity to convention, it was an irreducibly strange event, insofar as childbirth itself is the index of a radical strangeness. And this strange aspect of childbirth has not gone unnoticed. Um, in her novel Argonauts, Maggie Nelson asks the question, how can an experience so profoundly strange and wild also symbolize or enact the ultimate conformity. And the question has also been taken up in a theoretical guise, whether it be, as my former colleague Tanya Stahler has elaborated, in the atmosphere of singular uncertainty surrounding the birth process, or, as Iris Marion Young has put it, following Merleau-Ponty, 
in the sense that the pregnant body is alienated and doubled, or, as uh, Krishtiva has famously put it, uh, in the sense of the maternal subjectivity being a split one. In each case, birth often involves an uncanny and strange undertone. At stake in this strange atmosphere is a sense that the process involves a joint sense of the body as both familiar and unfamiliar. And such an atmosphere is often uh, one that is taken up not only in the theoretical literature, but also in aesthetic and cultural expressions, not least, of course, in the horror genre, where the trope of birth is often deployed to voice concerns about bodily ownership, self-integrity, and a general suspicion of medical practitioners as being motivated by sinister intentions. Yet beyond the familiar tropes of birth as a horrifying event, part of the strange aspect seems to center on the theme of anonymity. So think in the first case of the asubjectivity of both the fetus and the infant. The fetus that lives inside of the mother uh, does so beyond and outside the framework of subjective discourse. There is no communication save for that of two bodies touching and being touched. The fetus moves inside the womb, it's prodding and kicking at times even visible on the surface of the body, and may also occur, of course, at particular times of the day. Two bodies interact and intertwine, that of the same flesh in both a biological and also in a Merleau-Pontian sense. There is an asubjective being here that hears and can taste, who can smell and sense motion, but nevertheless does not distinguish between discernible aspects of experience living in a perpetual present, withdrawn from subjectivity, and thus marking what looks like a limit for uh, phenomenological research. Yet there is another way to think of childbirth as anonymous, and that is in terms of the uncanny terrain between the body as one's own and the body as other. To speak of the body in its otherness here, of course, invokes the idea of the pregnant body as being the host of another body. But what I have in mind is not simply the pregnant body as the host of another life, less even the pregnant body as a perceptually foregrounded object of pain. <clears throat> More enigmatic than this, I'm thinking here of the body in labor as a body that brings to light the inheritance of an anonymous and immemorial temporality outside of lived experience. And on this point, okay, uh, Merleau-Ponty writes, her own pregnancy, a woman's pregnancy, is not like, is not an act like all the others she accomplishes with her body. Um, pregnancy is more an anonymous process which happens through her and which she is only the seat. Um, such an anonymous process, as I will develop it in this talk, raises questions about bodily ownership, the integrity of selfhood, and within the context of birth itself, an accompanying anxiety over the sense of agency surrounding the birth process. My plan is to think through the issue of childbirth as anonymous through the lens of Merleau-Ponty, Merleau-Ponty's philosophy. The concept in his thought involves several strands, and like his thought as a whole, the concept is worked on uh, 
refined and radicalized as his thought progresses towards its end point. More than this, however, the theme comes under different terms, as personal, impersonal, an original past, a natural time, a time without a subject, an absolute past of nature, a past which has never been present, and in his later work, the memory of the world. My point of departure for thinking through these issues begins from the conviction that Merleau-Ponty's account of bodily life tends to privilege themes of integrity while neglecting how uh, non-human elements can serve as a threat or rupture to the unity of selfhood, especially in the context of limit experiences, not least childbirth. One might say in this sense that the subject of Merleau-Ponty is a particular kind of subject, at least in how it has been interpreted in Anglo-American scholarship. It is a subjectivity marked by a felicitous orientation toward the other, lingering at all times on a sense of the I can rather than the I can not. Uh, this note of caution with respect to the deployment of an already defined subjectivity can also be extended to the topic of childbirth itself. How to avoid the pitfalls of delineating the salient features of childbirth in a ready-made fashion. So here I'm thinking of a language that veers toward um, framing childbirth as a passive experience or otherwise transforms the process into a form of regression, savage and wild. Likewise, there is a tendency to view birth as a sort of parasitic relationship between mother and fetus. Again, a theme often deployed in the horror trope, uh, uh, James Cameron's alien here. Um, and in the same measure, to move in the opposite direction, namely a sanitizing, or worse, worse mythologizing childbirth, is equally as pernicious in terms of eroding the specificity of childbirth and potentially stigmatizing uh, painful childbirths. In the present talk, the risk of mischaracterizing the experience of childbirth is compounded insofar as the analysis is undertaken from a male perspective, of course my own. How, in a word, to avoid mansplaining childbirth? Uh, general question. Um, in a sense, the problem is not peculiar to childbirth, but is central to phenomenological research more generally. Namely, how can a male observer of a first-person female experience interpret an experience that is not one's own? The question is central to phenomenology insofar as one of the methodological commitments of, the me of phenomenology is to bracket one's own presupposition of a given phenomenon. Whether or not the method succeeds in this endeavor is, of course, another matter. Nevertheless, this paper does not seek to provide an explanatory account of the bodily foundations of childbirth, much less to clarify the nature of childbirth more broadly. Rather, my contribution is to argue uh, the phrasing childbirth as anonymous is beneficial in terms of both helping it navigate the complex levels of experience structuring the process. And there are at least two claims that tend to populate 
childbirth, uh, counsel childbirth which are especially relevant here. First, the sense of strangeness accompanying the sense of leaving one's body behind, or otherwise letting the body do its own thing. And um, second, the sense of strangeness accompanying the first encounter with the baby upon successful delivery. An encounter that raises the question of what role the mother played in the process itself. Um, okay, so I have to sort of provide some exposition here. Alas. Um, some theoretical foundations in Merleau-Ponty. The genesis of Merleau-Ponty's account of anonymity is motivated by a desire to account for the structure of perception, where perception is governed by a field of meaning and sense, unifying temporality into an overarching arc of significance. And the point of departure here is a question that runs through his work, namely, who is it that perceives. We generally respond to this question in an affirmative way. It is I who perceive. Uh, sorry. It is I who perceive the. Um, yeah, sorry. It is I who perceives the lighthouse appearing from the fog. It is I who perceives the bottle in front of me, and so on and so forth. But who or what is it? Is this I that provides a? Uh, perceptual function in the world? Who is it that enables me to function in the world and to institute meaning more generally? It is a question that compels Merleau-Ponty's thought forward. So in phenomenology perception, the question will be met with several responses, and several to central to each of them is the notion of an organic thought that mediates between the personal and the impersonal the physical and the psychical. The notion of an organic thought captures his insistence on how human experience is characterized by an overarching sense of unity, some tended to at all times by a pre-personal level of corporeal perception. Merleau-Ponty puts the issue as follows. Prior to stimuli and sensible contents, a sort of inner diaphragm must be recognized that determines what our reflexes and our perceptions will be able to aim at in the world, the zone of our possible operations, and the scope of our life. This personal, pre-personal or impersonal inner diaphragm determines not only a highly complex relationship to the world, but also the levels and sub-levels of human subjectivity. Indeed, it is thanks to the body in its generality that the personalized I is able to be situated in the world. And in an especially critical passage, he writes as follows. A margin of almost impersonal existence appears uh, around our personal existence, which, so to, be, sorry, so to speak, is taken for granted and to which I entrust the care of keeping me alive. Around the human world that each of us has fashioned, there appears a general world to which we must first belong in order to enclose ourselves within a particular world. My organism is a pre as a pre-personal adhesion to the form of the world, as an anonymous and general existence, plays the role of an innate complex beneath the level of my personal life. This peculiar structure that keeps me alive renders the body a double-sided entity. 
Just as it reveals itself to me as an experience, sorry, as an expressive and irreducibly personalized body, so it simultaneously evades me. We are subjected to our bodies in a literal way. As Merleau-Ponty has it, my life is made up of rhythms that do not have their reason in what I've chosen to be. Critically, <clears throat> uh, the impersonal existence that forms an arc in and around personal existence only does so partially as an almost impersonal existence. My body is never entirely anonymous, but nor is it unquestionably singular. Rather, it is a strange hybrid of rhythms, habits, and processes that are conceived of in the midst of finite life and which simultaneously belong to an older order of nature. Merleau-Ponty's concept of the anonymous body is invaluable in terms of generating a more subtle account of perceptual life. Yet what he tends to overlook is how impersonal and elemental dimensions of existence are given to experience, either uh, directly or indirectly, in an affective sense. For the most part, his thought is grounded in a principle of integration, such that different levels of perceptual life fold into one another without any fault lines developing in the process. This oversight is all the more surprising, given the privileged status that Merleau-Ponty attaches to the theme of strangeness in his philosophy. So here, uh, I'm thinking of his, especially his lectures on aesthetics, and also his late ontology. Uh, his, and here's his, his uh, definition of philosophy itself. Um, all of these characterizations of strangeness are predicated on the lived, humanized, personalized world coming into contact with the inhuman, prehistoric, and immemorial world that underpins human experience. Nowhere is this potential for disruption clearer than in the concept of the anonymous body itself. And this is understandable or uh, can be thematized in at least three senses. So, one. The first point to note here is that the idea of the anonymous body belongs to an elemental time, to a time of the world prior to that of the advent of the I, and indeed forgotten by the I. Against this, human experience emerges as a particular configuration of nature. The inception of the subject is not only a temporal event, insofar as living beings are born and die, more than this, we are of time and we are time incarnated in the flesh. Time runs in a series of complex ways, those that are habitual and which belong to us, and those which derive from a sedimented prehistory that runs parallel to us without ever being recouped by us. Seen in this way, we do not coincide with our origin, rather, we are merely the resumption and the trace of what Merleau-Ponty will call a thought older than myself, uh, which is at work in my perceptual organs, and which these organs are merely the trace. <clears throat> Number two, this recognition that our origin lies outside of ourselves has the effect of displacing the centrality of the personal self. So when faced with the question of who is perceiving, Merleau-Ponty issues a challenge here to the idea that perception is irreducibly one's own, 
stating that every perception takes place within an atmosphere of generality and is presented to us as anonymous. And if I wanted to express perceptual experience with precision, uh, then I would have to say that one perceives in me and not that I perceive. This recognition that our origin lies outside of our, sorry, um, there is another issue that is related to this claim. Namely, how is it possible to have an experience of an anonymous existence in the first place? The question appears paradoxical because to already have such an experience is to personalize it to some extent. However, this paradox is dissolved so long as we remain heedful of Merleau-Ponty's observation that an almost impersonal existence surrounds our personal existence. We are never entirely dissolved into an anonymous existence, nor are our lives uninterrupted seasons of bliss. It is true, for the most part, such reflections on anonymous life are absent in lived experience, and carnal life is given to us through a lens that is highly personalized, and which then provides an atmosphere of familiarity, not only to the body, but to the surrounding world. So for the most part, we remain at home with ourselves and in the world. But in the home, there is disquiet. As Merleau-Ponty indicates, personal existence is intermittent. Absence, displacement, and hauntings occur even, or especially, in the most innocuous settings. And if affective states such as horror and anxiety reveal the limits of the body as one's own, then they do so because they involve a constellation of contradictory aspects inhabiting the same space. The body is both foreign and intimate, the world is as, is as familiar as it is alien, and the sense of self is both integrated and fragmented in the same measure. The experience of anonymity is thus an experience of oneself on the verge of a depersonalized and raw materiality without ever dissolving into it completely. How then does all of this relate to childbirth? Well, in fact, on a theoretical level, the themes are already connected in several places in the work of Merleau-Ponty. And indeed, in contrast to uh, Heidegger's elevation of death as this sort of philosophical mood or theme par excellence, Merleau-Ponty is orientated to some extent in the opposite direction, namely toward the primordial source of, of, uh, of uh, sense and meaning. And there's been a significant amount of research done on these themes in addition to the term pregnancy within his work. Most critically for the present purpose, in Phenomenology of Perception, he will speak of the subject as already born, insofar as birth marks a pre-personal horizon in the same way that death does. And he goes on to say that I know that one is born and one dies, but I cannot know my own birth or my death. It arrives from beneath myself, and it results from a sensitivity that preceded it and that will survive it, just as my birth or my death belongs to an anonymous natality or mortality. Um, as intriguing as these thoughts are, however, I'd like to focus here on putting the body back in place and returning to the context of the hospital. And to get straight to the point, um, I'm concerned here with how Merleau-Ponty can help us understand two aspects of birth. One, 
the sense of the body is taken over when giving birth, and two, the sense of strange wonder upon the first encounter with the baby at the moment of birth. So here's part two talk. Um, right. On the first issue of the body taken over, let me begin here with a kind of longish quote from a woman called Sonia. Um, I wasn't ready, I wasn't ready, neither physically nor psychologically, because I didn't feel anything. My husband said, don't you think you're going to give birth soon? It's true, I had contractions, but since I never had them during my pregnancy, I didn't know what it was. I had a pain low down in my stomach, but I didn't know what it was. I thought it was nothing, I didn't want to go, and when I got there and they said, you're going to give birth right now, I was shocked. Apparently I was shaking like a leaf and I wasn't ready to give birth. I hope the next time it won't be like that because it was all too rushed and I wasn't expecting it. So, from the outset, labour is not inaugurated through personal intervention, but rather through waiting for the body to begin of its own accord. Um, Levesque Lopman, that's how you pronounce her name, one of the first feminist philosophers to offer a first-person account of childbirth, writes, quote, once labour has begun, it continues independent of the will. It is as if a woman's body is being taken over by a force. She cannot will the onset of labour, nor can she consciously or intentionally alter its pattern once it has begun. It proceeds to its end regardless of her desires. So this sense of the body taken over by a force is central to this account that we have here. Once the process was underway, Sonia becomes implicated by the rhythm of her body, caught up in a process in which she has no choice but to submit to it. And against this context, she becomes something like an actor in an event that is more encompassing than lived experience alone. The start of labour from a bodily level does not, therefore, coincide with the start of labour from an experiential level. This is not only evident in the temporality of labour, but it is also in the sense that the body in labour is to some extent indecipherable. From a first-person perspective, establishing what is going on in and with the body is not obvious. When the contractions do come, then they're not experienced as contractions as such, but rather a vague pain in her stomach which is dis dismissed as being incidental. Far from a transparent surface, the body presents itself here as a depth to be interpreted and deciphered. Contractions are understood as cramps, and the body in general is placed within the context of an everyday habitus. This experience of one's own body is thus, sorry, the experience of one's own body is thus no longer sufficient to guarantee a knowledge of what processes the body is actually performing at a given time. And paradoxically, it is only when the body is mediated through interpretations of other people or ab abstracted and measured with instruments that the body is then verified as being in the midst of labor and thus reintegrated back into subjective experience. As the course of labour develops, the sense of the body as anonymous and independent escalates. One way that this is evident is in terms of being swept away 
by the sheer force of the body in labor. And several quotations give us a sort of sense of these, the kind of uh, imagery involved here. So, um, yeah, one, uh, this is a, uh, from a famous book, sort of given a first person account of the experience of childbirth. Uh, she writes, the sensations are strong, overpowering, and can be at the same time delightful. One is swept away like a boat at sea in a great storm of exultant emotions and a tremendous sweep of physical energy. The body takes over in what seems like a wholly marvelous way. We can only be in awe, uh, sorry, we can only be in awe and deliver ourselves over in faith to this wonderful thing, the female body at the work of creation. So I'm just going to cite two more passages and then discuss them. Here's another one, because it's a sort of different sensibility. At about 8.30, I had a contraction. I couldn't really manage. My body wanted nothing but to push. Um, I couldn't help but push three or four times. For a moment, I was completely freaked out by the violence in me. I didn't realize that this was a pushing contraction and that this was the last phase of the birth. Finally, before the epidural, between the two contractions, I couldn't resist. In fact, I panicked when I felt a contraction coming on. After the epidural, I could enjoy the moment more because it's true that every contraction I was scared every time I was really stressed and with a breathing I wasn't managing too well, I wasn't comfortable. So we have varying interpretations of what is ostensibly a similar event. In each case, there is a characterization of the body as an overwhelming source of power, which does, which does not derive from perceptual experience alone. The image of being swept up in a wave of kinetic force populates all of these descriptions. They're interpreted differently. So in the first report, the climax of labor is presented in the sort of near grandiose symphonic terms as a sublime movement in which all of the parts converge in a seamless whole. We can only be in awe and submit ourselves in faith, in good faith, to this marvelous thing. The aesthetic dimension of the account is framed here not only by a language of awe, with its connotations of sublimity, but also by the distinction between we who are bystanders to the event and the female body itself, which is taken over in a seamless way. Throughout, there is a trust in the body as a benevolent, as benevolent and being on the side of the subject. For her own part, the subject can submit to the body without fear of being engulfed by an unknown and uncertain force. In the other accounts, this seamless integration between one's own body and the sense of the body as an overpowering force is augmented with a divisive and fragmented account of the laboring body as partly disintegrating the living subject. We find here a characterization of the body as being compelled forward by a violence that forges a division between the personal subject and her laboring body. And on this point, Merleau-Ponty remarks that women's sentiments regarding her pregnancy are always mixed sentiments, since there is a latent conflict between her personal life and the invasion of what could be called a species life. This latent conflict between the personal and the organic is given sharp expression in the accounts of corporeal violence that come to the surface and which in some cases can lead to panic. 
But from where does this panic come? Well, there are several possibilities. The first is that the panic seems to, to derive from an intolerance of pain, the thought being that a sort of anxiety emerges in the anticipation of a pain that is, of course, wholly inevitable. Such a claim is captured in Crusader Hayes' eloquent account of childbirth, writing that, I can only maintain a positive attitude for so long, my awareness turned inward, not toward calm, but toward the mess of sensations and the steely panic of the body's life. So that the epidural eases not only the pain, but also the anxiety seems to support this interpretation. However, it would be short-sighted, I think, to reduce this sort of sensation to pain alone. What is at stake in this and in other accounts is primarily a pain concerning the advent of the body that is no longer one's own. The laboring body, in its violence, becomes something that defies the story told of who one is. And alongside being a vehicle of pain, it has also disclosed itself as an anonymous sub-object resistant to integration. And on this point, Merleau-Ponty re-enters the scene. If we take the question of who it is that perceives seriously, especially given Merleau-Ponty's commitment to the bodily struct structure of perception, then must we not also rephrase the question in terms of who it is that gives birth? As we know, Merleau-Ponty advances an account of perception that centralizes an anonymous modality of an almost impersonal existence. In his terms, we entrust our personal existence to an innate complex. As we've also seen, for the most part, these zones of bodily existence remain integrated and unified into a whole. This is also true of some of the accounts of childbirth. As Levesque Lockman writes, my body seems to take over in a tremendous sweep of physical energy. As I turned to the rhythm of my body, I had no doubt uh, and my husband could only be in awe as I surrendered to the power of my body. Not all accounts of childbirth conform to this sort of sanguine interpretation, however. For other women, the sense of the body as a form of resistance establishes a radical discord that contributes to a partial erosion of selfhood. So Hayes writes how a host of body parts that had lain dormant were suddenly present in a blooming, buzzing confusion. Um, in the midst of childbirth, childbirth, these impressions of the body as irreducibly one's own is revealed in the most visceral and immediate sense as, con as a contingent configuration instituted by a thick network of habits, customs, and cultural practices. This resistance is not only applicable in cases of sickness and fatigue, it is also a constitutive dimension in subjective life such that who we are is grounded in a prehistory which is not of our own making. In childbirth, this proximal relationship to the anonymous body is rendered possible thanks to the fact that there is a preservation of a personal subject gazing upon her own body performing a series of functions over which the laboring woman has little sway. Yet this is not a neutral experience, but instead one that is laden with affective significance. As a dimension of bodily life, this anonymous sphere is not without a face. 
Uh, it speaks through us, and indeed it employs the human body as its vehicle of expression. Benevolent or not, this sense of another agency speaking through the human body has implications for how we understand ourselves. As Joanna Bonemark, sorry, Bonemark, puts it in her analysis of childbirth. The movement of life is violent and it doesn't really care about me, i.e. about this already constituted subjectivity. It breaks up and redraws the limits and in this way creates new subjectivities. New forms are shaped, new distinctions are made, and new borders are drawn. In the midst of this violence, there is still a small room left for subjectivity that can think, this will end, there will be time again, my subjectivity is not fully erased, but it is drawn towards its limits. This account captures the sense of the personal subject as neither wholly absent nor effaced by the advent of the body and labor. And it is precisely because there is a preservation of these two distinct levels of existence coming into sharp contact with one another that the event entails a strange tonality that can border on a sense of anxiety. In this respect, the metaphors of oceans and waves that emerge time and again in clinical accounts tend to be predicated on the image of riding the wave, such that there is an uh, alignment of one's bodily rhythms to the rhythms which precede and indeed outlive us. So Levesque Lotman writes here, if you are standing on the shore and a great wave begins to gather up from the shore and grows higher as it gathers force to remain facing it in an altitude of fear and helplessness would make you become rigid. When the wave struck, you would be swept un under and if you panicked, you would have been submerged. But by turning into the rhythms of the waves, you would have to ride, you would have, you would have ridden its crest and allowed it to pass. So, irrespective of the accuracy uh, of these sorts of images and metaphors, this commonplace theme of a choppy wave is instructive, insofar as it discloses implicit values embedded in childbirth. To be swept under is to lose one's sense of integrity. It is to be confronted with the vastness of the ocean as an elemental force indifferent to the personal subject. And panic takes place here in the intolerance of ambiguity that emerges before this scene. So Hayes writes, quote, the sensation of the tight squeeze of an anonymous body part that had, become, that had been a straight for 38 years opening to an estuary, all the while screaming in its reluctance, became intolerable. These accounts of birth involving a sense of the anonymous body is taken over, leaving the personalized subject merely one aspect in a larger scenario, establishes a strange tonality. Upon birth, this atmosphere of strangeness is not expired, but instead reinstated in the immediate aftermath of the baby's delivery. And Merleau-Ponty himself notes this in his lectures on child psychology, where he writes, that we often note that right after birth, a sentiment of strangeness of unreality arises. One way that this sentiment of strangeness manifests itself in a question one finds populating or coming up occasionally in the literature, namely, where did the baby come from? Of course, the question is not a factual or empirical one concerning the different phases of birth. Rather, it is rooted in a strange disbelief that the baby is finally here. 
and several cases can attest to this peculiar moment. Here's a, uh, a woman called Tess. The midwife handed her straight to me and I held her, but I held her for a while and I was just looking at her and wondering where did this baby come from? You know, despite what I'd gone through, it was hard to associate that she was actually mine and that she was out of my stomach. Even holding her for the first few minutes, I just, it just wasn't like she was mine, my kid, which is weird when you think of it and what, and it was really quite strange. Another quote from Kerry. Oh, I was just overcome. Like, where did the baby come from? My support people laughed at me and later, one, because they said you just, you like it was like, wow. I didn't know it was gonna come out. I didn't know a baby was gonna come out. It was just a really weird, spacey thing. Where does the baby come from? There are several reasons for asking this question. In the first case, it's not obvious that the first encounter with a baby should entail unequivocal and straightforward affirmation. Given, of course, that there's been a lengthy gestation period which has been framed by an alliance between the mother and the fetus, the eventual separation of these bodies carries with it a wide range of effective resonances. Bouffard speaks in this respect of an astonished melancholy in seeing the baby outside cut off from her. It is no longer an indistinct part of themselves, but a piece of the world. Uh, it, is no, it no longer secretly haunts the body, but can be seen and can be touched. Bouffard highlights here the strange metamorphosis undertaken between an intimate knowledge of the baby as an inner being whose flesh is figuratively and literally intertwined with a mother to a, strange, to a stranger who now faces the mother in a wholly unfamiliar way. As if from nowhere, the baby has a voice and a form. It is being seen for the first time. But there is another context here for the question of where did the baby come from? and it is rooted in the narrative of labor more broadly. So as we've seen, childbirth involves the interplay of personal and impersonal levels of bodily existence inhabiting the same space and time. This rapport between different levels of bodily and perceptual life unfolds in a dialectical and dynamic manner. At times there is a synchronicity of the body in labor with those of the woman in labor, and at other times these rhythms and these temporalities disembark on a divergent path resulting in an alienation from the body in its anonymous roots. In the immediate aftermath of birth, this dialectical interplay of differing levels of existence tend to reintegrate, a process framed by the radical contrast of which Levesque Lotman writes, and here I quote her, no contrast in life can be greater than that between the mother before and after spontaneous birth. I emerged feeling marvellous with increased dignity and enhanced self-esteem. I could not remember ever feeling better about myself. This is a special birth because um, Jesus just happened to be there at this time. Um, Levesque Lotman describes a moment of returning to herself in a renewed fashion. But what is significant about this is that it's only upon the resumption of the I that there can be a retroactive grasp of what actually just took place. Up until that point, when the body is said to have taken over, there is a diminishment of subjectivity and a partial surrender to what Merleau-Ponty describes as the subject beneath me. As the I remains, it becomes depersonalized insofar as it has been stripped of its personal attributes and swept up in the primacy of the anonymous body. 
At all times it is implicated by a course of action over which it has little control. Seen in this way, the immediate moment after birth is kind of privileged, oh sorry, uh, not, only for, not only for its human value, but also because it involves a constellation of different modalities of life briefly occupying the same terrain. For a brief moment, the impersonal and the personal converge. The body and labor is experienced with a radiant insight in all its strangeness before it is reconsolidated back into the living subject. And here we have another sort of characterization of this. Um, from the head nodding coma of an endorphin soaked dream, I woke up in the fullest and most alive state of alert presence. I was aware of every detail as the drama of my body split into two. It is against this fleeting moment that the baby is handed to the mother, and she must now make sense of how it arrived, while being caught up in the drama of a bodily existence that pushes subjectivity to a limit. Bouffoir, sorry, no. uh, yeah, Bouffoir writes here, it is strangely miraculous to see and to hold a living being formed within oneself and issued forth from, from oneself. But what part has the mother in the extraordinary event that brings into the world a new existence? She does not know. This sort of strange sense of disbelief in what is ostensibly all too real finds an expression in an unlikely place, namely an account written by Freud of a visit to the Acropolis. In an essay from 1936 entitled A Disturbance of Memory on the Acropolis, he writes here of a trip he undertook to Greece in 1904. When, he writes, finally on the afternoon of our arrival, I stood and cast my eyes upon the landscape, I suddenly thought, sorry, a surprising thought suddenly entered my mind. So all of this really does exist, just as we learnt it from school. The reflection extends beyond a simple verification that seeing something with one's own eyes um, sorry. Uh, sorry. It's different from reading or hearing about it in an abstraction. More enigmatic than this, Freud terms this encounter a movement of derealization. Notwithstanding his own psychoanalytic interpretation of the event, what is important here is the idea that derealization involves a joint recognition of a phenomena as being both real and unreal in the same measure. His encounter with the ruins does not erase the landscape, quite the opposite, the phenomenality of the ruins become amplified in their perceptual intensity. This disjunction between a subject who is placed in the world and a world that cannot yet be placed is critical, I think, to the question of where the baby has come from. To ask where the baby has come from is not to make a comparison between the representation of a baby on an ultrasound and the reality of the baby in the flesh, nor is it to involve a traumatic or pathological scene. Rather, it is to contend with an everyday reality of a, sorry, of a baby's reality on an existential level. Something in this encounter remains outside of reality, a non-possessible dimension of subjectivity, which in turn generates a dreamlike state. So to ask where a baby has come from is to reinstate Freud's admission that what I'm seeing here is not real. To see with one's own eyes what is not real is not to see an unreal world, nor is it to negate the world in its concrete reality. Rather, it's to see the world anew, as though for the first time. 
as Merleau-Ponty has it, every sensation includes a seed of dream or depersonalization as we experience through this sort of stupor into which it puts us in which we truly live at the level of sensation. In pushing a, a living being to the edge of their subjectivity, childbirth does not introduce a new facet of existence into the world, but amplifies how human experience more broadly is structured by this depersonalized germ. Such an opening issues a challenge to the dominant view of the self as a unitary and self-contained entity always in possession of itself. If childbirth is marked by an irredu irreducible strangeness, then this strangeness is as much directed to, to the stranger who is, who is born as it is the strangeness of the body which generates the conditions of birth itself. Thank you very much.